I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much. We, we spent this morning thinking about the plethora of gifts that you've given to us. And we'll need eternity to say them all. Once we see you, we'll remember or know millions more than we know now. And yet you are able to break everything down to one. And I'm so thankful for that. That in your son, we have everything. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Have you guys ever pondered the question, how, how can I know God's will for my life? Younger believers tend to ask that question more often than older believers. And sometimes the older believers have good reason for that. It's because they already know the answer. But, but sometimes they're just not really paying attention. There's a second question that ties in with the first. And that is, if you have ever asked that question, how can I know God's will for my life? What categories of life did you have in mind? In other words, what was it that you were actually asking to know? Y'all give me a couple of honest answers to what, what parts of life did you have in mind when you asked that question, how can I know God's will for my life? Marriage, that's, that's usually number one. What else? Yeah, career, occupation, education. Should I go to college? What should I major in? Okay. That's, uh, you're thinking along the same lines that I was when, when I looked at this. And, uh, so, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge that a little bit. What if I said to you, based on this passage, that the indispensable heart of God's will for your life is for you to love His people the way He has loved you in Christ. So that His church will be united and effective at doing what we are here to do. What if I said to you that that is more important to God than whom you marry? It's more important than whether you go to college and what you major in. It's far, far more important than what career you end up in for the rest of your life. I've had five so far. And, and what if I said to you that it's actually a much bigger deal than that? That guarding and protecting unity in the church, the body of Christ, by loving your brothers and sisters as Christ has loved you, is the most important thing you will ever do to advance the kingdom of God on this earth. It's the most important thing you will ever do to fulfill the great commission of Jesus Christ. Now note that I didn't say it's the only thing that God intends for you to do to advance His kingdom. I said it's the most important 
We don't tend to think that way, do we? But beloved, that's what this passage is about, and that's how important this passage is to this letter and and to your life. If you know people who were not able to be here this morning, I'm going to ask you, I don't I don't pitch my messages, but I'm going to ask you to to encourage the people you know who aren't here this morning to get online and listen to this one and interact with this text, interact with what this passage is is calling us to, is, is requiring, demanding of us because of our calling. As Paul moves from our calling in Ephesians 1 through 3, whose we are and what we have been given in Christ, to our calling-driven walk in Ephesians 4 through 6, what does he talk about first? He talks about unity in the body of Christ. And not just unity in principle, but but God's commission to us to guard and nurture the unity that God has created by loving each other with Christ-like love. That's what the kind of love that's that's described here, as we'll see. I heard one sermon this week where the pastor said, uh, the preacher said that at Ephesians 4:1, Paul is moving from Doctrine to duty. From doctrine to duty. Now, he's a biblically minded, godly preacher. I listen to him often, and he really, he handled the text very well. But I believe that that wording misses a connection that we can't afford to miss. I believe that it makes it far too easy for us to unplug chapters 4 through 6 from chapters 1 through 3. Paul did not wrap up his discussion of the outrageous riches we've been given in Christ at the end of chapter 3 so he could get past all that theology and start talking about real life. He is not moving from doctrine to duty. He's moving from outrageous grace to grace-driven godliness. He's moving from our miraculous calling to our calling-driven walk. And I know we've already talked about this a bunch. We spent all of the last message on it. But this is going to keep coming up as we go through the second half of this great epistle. Paul keeps making this connection. And he does so in this very passage. So you can expect to hear it spoken of a lot more before we finish Ephesians. When Paul exhorts us in chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called, that means that we are to wake up in the morning, we are to do all that we do during each day, and we are to go to bed at night knowing that all of the outrageous and unfathomable riches of Christ that Paul has declared to be ours in chapters 1 through 3 actually belong to us. And can never be taken away from us who, who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Are you with me here? Ravi Zacharias says, when he preaches, he says, in India, this is how we say yes and this is how we say no. Are you with me? This is a connection none of us can afford to miss. If we do not cling fiercely to this beautiful link between 
what God has done in Christ for us and how we therefore live. Beloved, we will unplug ourselves and each other from the supply line that God has provided for godly living. In verses 2 and 3, Paul begins telling us what a walk that's worthy of our calling actually looks like. And he says this, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now the words one another, forbearance, Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance for one another. The words one another in verse 2 tell us without a doubt that Paul is not talking about every relationship that we have in the world. He's talking about our relationships with each other in the body of Christ. That's what he's always talking about when he, talk, when he uses that phrase in his epistles, one another. He starts with our assignment regarding those relationships. In verses 2 and 3. And then he circles right back to our calling in verses 4 through 6. To the reality on which that assignment is grounded. Now the first thing I want to point out here is what he says in verse 3. And we'll come back to to look at verse 2. But verse 3 says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word translated preserve means to watch, guard, or keep. Probably a good way to render it would be to keep watch over. Okay? He is not instructing us to create unity in the body of Christ. We can't do that. He's instructing us to guard the unity that God has already created. He's calling us to live as one because God has made us one to be in practice what we are in fact god made us chapter 2 verse 15 he took jew and gentile and he made us into one new man in christ so we are to live as one new man and we must not miss that the oneness paul is instructing us to diligently guard is the oneness of the spirit The oneness of the Spirit. And what does that mean? Well, the very essence of what makes us one in Christ, or rather, who makes us one, is the indwelling Holy Spirit. You know, that is the, that is the one most same thing that is true of you that's also true of me. Is that there's all kinds of things that are different about us, but we, you and I who belong to Christ have the same Holy Spirit dwelling within us. If you've been brought into everlasting union with Christ through faith in Him alone, then according to the first chapter of this letter, you were sealed by God with the Holy Spirit, with His indwelling Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity. See, God has made you His dwelling place on earth. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, the reason that Paul gives us to flee sexual immorality is because it defiles the very temple 
or dwelling place of God on earth that your physical body now is. And when you defile that vessel, you are, you are denying the holiness of the one who indwells that vessel. But the dwelling place, the earthly temple of God on earth is definitely not just you. It's you together with every other redeemed child of God. And that's exactly what Paul said at the end of chapter 2. He said, we are all being built together into one building, one holy temple in the Lord, one dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God's temple here on earth is the body and the body. It's not one or the other, it's both. The Holy Spirit is the very essence, the indwelling Spirit is the very essence of our oneness in Christ. And that's a oneness that we have nothing to do with creating, but it's a oneness that God calls us to diligently guard. By the way, don't be, when I talk about the fact that our calling is not what we are to do, don't get paranoid about saying God called us to do. He absolutely has called us to do stuff. But when Paul talks about our calling, he's talking about whose we are and what we've been given. So please understand that distinction. Your union with Jesus Christ means that you no longer have an identity separate from Him. You have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.2 And your union with Christ, get ready for this, your union with with Christ means that, that you no longer have an identity that is separate from me. I know that's really scary for some of you. But it's true, so so get used to it. God has brought you into eternal union with me and with Robert and with Kim, with Charlene, and even with Gordon. (laughs) Of course, none of us will ever be as funny as Gordon, but probably not even in eternity, but just... He's brought us into eternal union with every believer who has ever walked this earth. When we create or allow division between His people, we are acting in violation and denial of the unity that God created when He put His Holy Spirit in us individually and corporately. So the goal of our worthy walk is to guard the unity that God has created. God made us who were many into one new man, and we're supposed to keep watch over that oneness. But what does that look like? How are are we actually supposed to treat each other? Well, Paul tells us, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, patience, Showing forbearance to one another in love. Look at that list. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance in love. Now are those the character traits that you would expect to have to put into practice to guard unity in the body of Christ? Or, or when you think of that assignment, do you think, tend to think first of things like rebuking sin at the first sign of it? Or protecting sound theology at all costs? 
or demanding such uniformity of thought in the church that there could be no possibility of division. Is there any hint of any of those things here? This is about priority. Is there any hint of aggressiveness in Paul's words in verse 2? Is there any justification here for our tendency to pounce when we know we're right on a matter of faith or practice? Is there anything here about self-vindication or self-defense? Well, let's look again just in case we missed it. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. The last part of that Verse, in love, that really says it all. See, that's, that's the driver for all the rest of those attributes that Paul mentions. In Colossians 3, Paul gives us a clearer picture of what I'm getting at there. He tells us how love relates to all these other attributes that impact the unity of the body in practice. Colossians 3, listen to Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, that's our calling, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And then he says, and beyond or above or bigger than all of these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And the words of unity aren't actually in there. So he's saying, put on love, which is the perfect bond. The perfect glue that holds us together. Love is super, super glue. Even nail polish remover doesn't phase it. And that brings us to something else that we must not miss here. Look one more time at this list of attributes that is supposed to control our dealings with each other in the body of Christ. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. Does that sound like somebody that we know it better yeah, Jesus. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus said, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit. And you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and My burden is light. Now, I won't attempt to sort out whether the humility of Christ during His first coming to dwell among us applies to the triune God at all times. Theologians have been wrestling with that for centuries. But I will say with great confidence that there's a fundamental difference between the humility of Christ as the Creator and the humility that His example demands of us as His creatures. His humility was chosen because of His abundant love and mercy and grace. Ours is necessary. His humble and gentle spirit toward us shows us the very spirit that we must 
absolutely display toward one another. He's the master and we are the servants. And since our master humbled himself to serve us all the way to the point of death on a cross in, in submission to his father, we must do daily toward one another as Christ has done toward us. All right, so according to Ephesians 3.2, humility and gentleness are attributes that, uh, that Paul says we are to, to put to work in our dealings with each other. And as we do so, we're, we're being like Jesus. But what about the other attributes? What about patience and forbearance and love? Where do those come from? In our recent study of John's Gospel, we saw Jesus display all of those attributes in living color in His dealings with His disciples. Patience. Forbearance, love. Those are attributes of God's very nature and character. God, uh, God said so with great clarity in Exodus chapter 34. You remember Moses asked God, uh, he said, God, show me your glory. And God, uh, God didn't show him his visible glory in its fullness. In fact, as, as the glory of God passed by in front of Moses as he stood in the cleft of a rock, God sort of hid that visible glory. He would have died. Moses would have dropped dead if he had seen the fullness of God's visible glory. But God God manifested to Moses the glory of his character by proclaiming his character as he passed by. And he said, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, in loving kindness and truth. So, let's see. Patient, forbearing, loving. These are all, all things that are absolutely true of God. They are essential to His nature. In fact, guys, we wouldn't know what those words mean if it weren't for God. Because the world's version of them is a crummy imitation. How do you and I guard the oneness of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the body of Christ? By being as Christ to one another. Let me say that one more time. How do we, how do we guard the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the body of Christ? By being as Christ to one another. That means that we treat every child of God as God has treated us. The words being diligent tell us that guarding unity isn't something that just happens. It definitely isn't something that we are naturally inclined to do well. In fact, we're naturally inclined to destroy unity. So guarding it uh, demands great diligence on our part. And that means this this is hard work. And we need to get used to that. It's hard work because our habit of sin is to do exactly the opposite of this assignment. It's to be selfish. It's to, it's to get what we want at other people's expense, and that doesn't make for unity. And, and the other reason that, that it's hard work is because the same thing is true of everybody else in the body of Christ. It's not just us. If you and I expect that God is supposed to put some, some kind of boundaries on the sorts of struggles into which He draws us as we care for one another, then we need to cast that expectation behind us and never look back. Because that's not how this works. 
Loving Christ's own as Christ has loved you is hard work. It's hard work empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit. He does the heavy lifting. But it is so counter to the habit of our sin that it's not easy for us any day of our lives. It's very possible, very possible, that the harshest things, the most hurtful things that will ever be said to you or about you behind your back will be said by brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, it's possible that those things will be said about you by the brothers and sisters that you are seeking most earnestly to love with the love of Christ. Because see, when you get in the lives of other people, that's hugely risky business from a human perspective. I don't think there's any riskier business on earth than being alongside other people and the hardest things that they go through. If you want to know where to draw the lines when a brother or sister is unloving toward you, if you want to know how much, just how much abuse and disrespect and believing the worst about you that you're supposed to have to put up with before you get to excuse yourself from loving and serving that brother who's treating you that way or that sister, God's answer to you is as clear as a bell. Look to Jesus and do to your brother and sister what He did to you. What He did for you. Pretty tough standard. But, but we'll see. That's exactly the standard to which we are held in this, in this epistle. Forgive as you have been forgiven by God in Christ. Walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave Himself up for us. Soothing aroma to the Lord. Where did Jesus draw the lines as He loved and served you in submission to His Father? Where would you be spending eternity if He drew them where you'd like to draw them when it comes to your service? toward your fellow believers? That's the answer, beloved. That's God's answer. What Jesus did for you is what you need to know in determining what you must do for your brothers and sisters. Now, please understand that does not mean that you enable or ignore your brother's sin against you or against anyone else. Jesus didn't. And He commanded us to deal with sin. Read Matthew 18, just before the whole forgive 70 times 7 passage. Here's what it does mean. It means that you completely, completely entrust the provision and protection of your well-being into God's faithful hands, and that frees you up to speak and to act in selfless love for your brother and sister. You don't have to be concerned for one second about your well-being. And, and, and it's that abandonment of our well-being that makes us able to do this by God's grace. First Peter, First Peter 2, I think it's verse 21 and 22, it says you were called for this very purpose, and that is to 
to let yourself be subjected to these sorts of things. It says, Jesus, while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the secret. That's what makes this work. God has our well-being covered. All right. So we are to guard oneness in the body of Christ diligently, and we are to guard that oneness by loving one another as Christ has loved us. What is this oneness that we guard? I put on here a little divine math. One times seven equals one. I said earlier that Paul was going to take us back to our calling many times in the second half of of Ephesians because he knows that our calling is the supply line for godly living, the kind of living that he's exhorting us to put into practice. And he starts doing that right here. In verses 4 through 6, he takes us back to whose we are, what we have been given in Christ, and he's focusing on our corporate calling, not our individual calling. There are many things about each of us that distinguish us from one another. Different personalities, different languages, ethnicities, skin color, different incomes. But beloved, there can be nothing that divides us from each other. Distinguishes? Yes. Divides? No. Because we who are many have been made one in Christ by God. Paul sets before us seven beautiful ones. Seven points of perfect unity that God has made true of us in Christ. There is one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Back in verse 3, Paul exhorted us to diligently guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in our dealings with one another. And that's where he starts now as he begins to enumerate these seven miraculous ones that glue us together. He says, there is one body and one Spirit. But but guys, it isn't as if the Holy Spirit is occupied with indwelling and empowering us to live the Christian life while the Father and the Son are off doing other things. See, while one person of the Trinity may be front and center in any given work of God, according to Scripture, all three persons of the Trinity are present and active in every work of God. Starting with the creation in Genesis 1. That's what Jim Ellis referred to as the inseparable operations of the Trinity when he taught on the, on the topic of the Trinity. The inseparable operations of the Trinity. It's a great phrase. Let me say it again. While one of the persons of the Trinity may be front and center in some particular work of God, all three persons of the Trinity are present and active in every work of God. Because our triune God is three in one, not three in three. 
And what I urge you to see, beloved, is that that's not some dry, distant, esoteric theology that makes us say, hmm, wow, that's, that's interesting about God. Doesn't have any impact on me, but it, it's interesting about God. The reality is that the God who made us is three persons in one essence. And that reality impacts us every single day in all that we do on this earth on His behalf. God is three in one, not three in three. And He has made us who were many, who once went about our imitation lives doing our own things with all manner of differences dividing us from one another. He has taken that and He has made us into one new man in Jesus Christ. He who is three in one has created a body of Christ that is many in one. Now, as I pondered this passage over the last couple of weeks, I found myself really kind of in awe of how Paul intermingles the oneness of God with the oneness of us. Right in the middle of his declaration that God has made us one body, one church, in which many are bound together by one hope of his calling, one faith, one baptism. Paul says there is one Spirit, there is one Lord, and there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One Lord refers to Jesus. You go back to the second verse of this letter. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we are bound together to each other as one in Christ by one Spirit, one Lord Jesus, and one Father. Their unity makes us one. It's one of the most profound and defining truths of our calling that the oneness of the church is God's oneness manifested in the church. Many Muslims, and for that matter, many Jews, see the Christian doctrine of the Trinity as polytheism. They accuse Christians of worshiping three gods, not one. But beloved, if you take away either the plurality of God, that God is not one person but three, or the unity of God, that God is one essence, one God, if you dispense with either of those, you destroy the very foundation of our unity as the people of God. You destroy the only true oneness that human beings will ever know. Because our oneness is an extension of His oneness. And that's a big deal. I want to wrap up this morning by considering just a few implications of this marvelous assignment to guard the oneness that God has created in His church. And some of these implications may not be immediately obvious. The first is you can't have a, a walk, a lifestyle that's worthy of your calling if you are not in genuine, real-life relationship with the people of God. Internet church is not church. I'm not saying it's sinful to listen to sermons online. 
I'm saying that's not church. And fitting church attendance into your schedule when it's convenient on the occasional Sunday morning is nothing like God's assignment to you as a member of His body. Nothing like it on the basis of your calling with which you have been called. Beloved, you have no identity and you have no purpose on this earth that isn't bound up with your fellow saints in Jesus Christ. God didn't appoint elders and deacons in the local body so that you wouldn't have to do what they do to nurture and build up His body. He appointed elders and deacons as examples to you of what He intends for you to be doing. That means we better do it well and you better do it well. And He's given us every extravagant reason to love that assignment. The second implication that struck me is that the mobile church doesn't get to be the loosely connected church. The fact that many of you pass a dozen or more churches on your way to get here on Sundays does not mean that it's okay with God for you to change churches every time the going gets tough. Christians in the big cities of the United States seem to think that the only reason the early believers put up with each other's nonsense is because they didn't have anywhere else to go to be with believers. Since we can get in our cars and get to any one of 200 churches in 30 minutes, we don't have to tolerate that kind of nonsense from other Christians. We can just go find a church where we don't have to deal with that. Beloved, that mindset destroys everything that Paul is saying here about how we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That is not a worthy walk. See, our modern mobility doesn't change one single thing about our calling. So it doesn't change one single thing about our assignment. Because our assignment proceeds from our calling. Everything that Paul exhorts us to do on the basis of that glorious calling throughout the second half of Ephesians, please hear me, everything that he, everything that he calls us to do assumes continuity of relationships in the body of Christ. It assumes continuity of relationships in the body of of Christ. It demands our devotion to that continuity. When Paul moves in chapter 5 from how our worthy walk manifests itself in the church to how that very same worthy walk manifests itself in our marriages, he doesn't even pause to start a new sentence. And that's because the relationship between Christ and His church is the greater reality that tells us what all of our relationships with all of our fellow saints should look like. Now please understand, I am not saying that we are as bound to one local church in God's eyes as we are to our spouses. There are all kinds of legitimate reasons for people to move to a different local body. But dodging God's assignment to diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is never one of those legitimate reasons. The walk that God's gracious calling demands of you is a very demanding walk. One brother recently told me that most churches would consider him, because of his struggles, to be far too risky 
and would have shown him the door a long time ago, but that this church has shown him the forbearing love of Jesus. We don't always do that well. But that is always our beautiful assignment. That is always your beautiful assignment from the Master and Savior who did that for you. Life in the household of God this side of glory is not supposed to be convenient. And if you find a church that tells you that it is, that's when you should leave the church. Third implication are worship meetings. Gatherings around the Lord's Supper. I want to tread lightly here and we and I, we certainly do not need to be legalistic about this, but I pray you'll give this a little thought and prayer. If we're charged with guarding unity in Christ's body day by day, how important do you think it is to God that we are unified in the way that we worship Him when we come together on Sundays to remember Him in the Lord's Supper? Men, when you come up to share during our worship time, what you have to say should advance the theme that the opener introduced in the call to worship. That's how we do a unified worship. If you have to shoehorn something that you had on your mind all week into that theme, probably not the right Sunday for you to share it. Again, I'm not talking about being legalistic. I'm just asking you to think about this. In a wonderful way, the songs that we sing actually force us to share a theme together, right? The rest of our worship should be like that, voluntarily. If you're not on the email list to receive the bulletin that's that's emailed out on Thursday each week, Debbie Johnson, Blynn, uh, let one of them know and they'll happily put you on that list. And then each week, before Sunday morning, have a look at the worship thing. It'll take you a couple of minutes to at least see what it is that the opener has put inside the first page of the bulletin. Look at any verses that he has included. Pray about that theme a little bit before you come. It'll, it'll prepare your heart. You'll get more out of the worship. God has made very sure that we won't find unity in anything except Him. Nobody will. The more noble-minded among lost souls inevitably long for harmony and unity between people and nations. They always have. They come up with one plan after another to accomplish that exalted goal. But guys, God created man for Himself. And there's no possibility that He's going to allow men to create a genuine unity between human beings that dispenses with Him. And by the way, He already proved that at a place called Babel. Here's a great opportunity for evangelism. The next time you hear anyone speak of their grand designs for making human beings united, point out with confidence that the God who made us isn't going to let that happen on our terms. He has a good and gracious reason for not letting it happen, and that's because He made us for Him. The last point, and I'll be quick, the last very, very important ramification of all of this is the importance of prayer. If the unity that we are called to guard is the unity of the Holy Spirit, 
if it's a unity created by God, how dependent are we on God to guard it well? The answer is absolutely, utterly dependent. What do dependent people do? They depend. And how do we acknowledge and express and, express and abide in a life of dependence on God? We pray. We pray. If we don't pray, we're not depending. This is huge, beloved. The call to unity, the call to unity, the call to guard the unity that God has created between us is our top assignment as the children of God. There are many other assignments. This is the big one. Look at John 17 at the high priestly prayer of Jesus and ask yourself the question. Start at verse 20 and ask yourself the question, how important is our unity to the spread of the gospel on earth? How important is our unity so that human beings know that the Father sent the Son? Jesus answers it in that prayer. How important is our unity so that people know who we actually are? Jesus answered that one too. How important is the love that we show to each other in order that people will recognize Christ in us? And our message, the message of the gospel that we bear to this world will be adorned instead of denied. Father, what a marvelous assignment you have given to us here. To be appointed your caretakers of the beautiful, beautiful unity that you have graciously given to us with each other. In Jesus Christ. Make us faithful in that assignment, Father. By the boundless power of your Spirit, whom you have made to live within us. We ask it in Jesus' precious name.